Welcome to Investing in Integrity. I'm Ross Overline, CEO and co-founder of Scholars of Finance, a rapidly growing organization on a mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. If you're an investor, finance professional, or student aspiring to make an impact with capital, this show is for you. Investing in Integrity brings you conversations with leading minds in finance to help you learn how you can make finance a force for good by investing in integrity. For our 49th episode of the show, we're doing something a little different. Today, we get to hear from none other than our very own chairman, CEO, and co-founder, Ross Overline. Ross believes that responsible finance, values-based leadership, and effective education are critical to the development of a prosperous and inclusive world. As such, he is committed to transforming the financial system with his team at Scholars of Finance. Prior to SOF, Ross held roles spanning equity research at Piper Sandler, global go-to-market at Twitter, and serving on the leadership team that launched SoFi Money, the deposits business of SoFi. He earned his bachelor's degree at Fordham and the University of Minnesota, and has completed executive education at Cornell and Stanford. His hobbies include triathlon training and competing, mentoring and coaching, startup advising, studying neuroscience, economics, history, and philosophy, and freestyle and spoken word, although regrettably he informed our team he would not be performing some for us on the show today. Welcome, Ross. How does it feel after 48 episodes of being the host to now be in the guest hot seat? Well, Michonne, first of all, thank you for the very kind introduction. You're very sweet. And yes, there will be no freestyling on today's episode, despite the development team who I just met with before this demanded that I do it on a future episode. It's an interesting feeling, Nishant. You know, we originally started this podcast, Investing in Integrity, because we wanted to be able to take this purpose-driven, principled leadership content for aspiring leaders in finance. And we wanted to make it accessible and available to more people. Right. What we were doing at Scholars of Finance in the early days was helping, you know, when I stepped in four years ago, we were at three schools with 40 students. And you fast forward, we're at 60 universities and more than 2,000 students with worst case 1,700 and best case 2,200 entering our program in the fall, in a month. And so our team is preparing to handle that inflow. But we wanted to reach more people with this A and B. We started to get feedback right away. Tony Paquette, one of our advisors, who I met when I was at SoFi and took me on as a mentee and a friend at SoFi and our like third episode reached out and said, wow, this is amazing. You know, John Taft is great. These are great conversations. You're doing a good job. What we now look at when we look at the podcast and we look at our audience, what we now see is three quarters of our listeners in this podcast are over the age of 24. You know, a quarter are age 18 to 24 and three quarters are 25 and older. And I routinely get messages from very senior executives, you know, who manage tens or hundreds of billions of dollars and allocate it that they found our interviews useful. And so to answer your question, how does it feel to be in the guest seat? You know, interesting. I don't have 15 tabs open. It's just you and me and a microphone, and I'm just going to answer your questions. I'm not even looking at them. So it feels a lot easier, frankly. (laughs) And I hope that everyone that listens to this episode, call me a little bit modest or timid or shy, but I hope everyone that listens to this conversation, finds it useful or insightful in some way. And that's my goal today. Sure, they will. And I'm more than happy to carry the burden this time of having the 15 tabs open. And it's certainly been an incredible growth journey to see over the past few months and years. By way of introduction for our listeners, my name is Nishant. I'm the co-founder and former president of the Princeton chapter of SOF, which I helped launch way back in 2020 at the end of my freshman year. I've been an employee at SOF at the national level for three years now. 
first as a part-time management associate during my time in college, and now having just graduated as full-time chief of staff. SOF has been transformative for my life and career. You know, I like to say that it's had as much of an impact on me as college has. And Ross, of course, happens to be one of my closest mentors, which is why I'm humbled and honored to be hosting this episode. So in today's episode, we hope to dive into three areas. First, we'll hear a little bit about the background and history of SOF, as well as a bit of a deep dive into Ross's background and motivations. We'll talk about the present and future of SOF and where Ross sees the industry as well as the organization going. And finally, we'll do a rapid fire through a handful of questions that have been submitted by members of our community for advice and guidance. So without further ado, if you're ready, Ross, we'll dive right in. Happy to, Nishan. I just want to react to a couple of things you said in your own introduction. For all of our listeners, it can't be understated how impactful Nishant has been in the founding journey of Scholars of Finance. When Nishant said that he's the full-time chief of staff on the national team, you neglected Nishant to mention that you're my chief of staff. You are chief of staff to the CEO full-time before you go to EY Parthenon and go off to Wharton for your MBA, which you have already been accepted into in their 2 plus 2 program. And if I can do my job, watch out EY Parthenon. You're only going to have Nishant for nine months and he's going to come and work for me for the next 40 years and help me build a suite of companies that transform the financial system. <laughs> and the other thing I would say, Nishant, you know, as impactful as SOF has been for you and your college career, you have enabled that kind of impact for hundreds and soon thousands of other people. So I hope you're incredibly proud. One thing I did want to also pay you a compliment on is your preparation for the episode. I know you asked me for a quick round of edits on the questions and it was minimal. You know, it took five minutes with it for you, but You've done a great job preparing. And I loved how, maybe you were going to share this later, but how you actually went to our feedback channel in Slack, you know, asking 2,000 members of our community what they want to hear about, what questions they have. You got dozens of questions in line, I saw. And so, you know, really excited to answer the questions that you and our students have. Well, Ross, you give me far more praise than I think I deserve, but that's certainly very generous. Well, let's dive right in. And we'd like to start by talking a little bit about your sort of background and motivations. So for many students that first meet you, and I can attest to this myself because I've seen it when you visited my campus at Princeton, one of the most striking things about you is how deeply dedicated you are to serving society and making a transformative, meaningful impact on society in your career. And I was curious, where does that motivation come from? And what were some of the most defining experiences and learnings for you along that journey? Ah, I remember seeing this question and was like, how vulnerable am I going to be here in a public forum? And where I've landed, you know, thanks to the encouragement of my dearest mentors like Deb Shoneman, Richard Davis, Frank Chen, Scott Cooper, and many others, you know, who I'm sure I'll name at various times in this conversation to give credit where credit's due. The answer I arrived at is I'm going to be very open and candid and vulnerable answering this question. And I think the best form is just a quick life story of my childhood, which a lot of folks have never heard. I was born in a small farm town called Belle Plaine, Minnesota, little town of 3,000 approximately citizens, mostly rural, agrarian, construction, trades, very blue collar little farm town, 45 minutes outside of Minneapolis, an hour plus with traffic. My grandfather, Albert, was a sheriff in the Minnesota State Highway Patrol. So we had service to others in our family. His crowning achievement of his career was being, I believe it was the sort of head of the escort service for, I think it was President Nixon twice, maybe Reagan. I may be forgetting which president. And it's a very meticulous man, very organized, measured everything. 
and incredibly neat and detailed and intelligent, kind of dignified, calm man. My grandmother, Vi, she died early of early onset Alzheimer's. My father is one of five children from my two grandparents on my paternal side. And two of them have already been taken, his siblings, by Alzheimer's dementia. And two of them have it right now. And when I talk to my father, he's routinely inviting me home to, quote, see Alan before he doesn't remember you anymore, end quote. My dad's on his fourth and fifth, call it rotation, with one of his closest nuclear family members being taken by this neurodegenerative disease. My dad was in construction his whole life. He moved out of his home at the age of 16, started building, putting in fence posts, but being an overline, son of Albert, being Brian, who you've met in a shop, we just had a 30 minute call where you got to talk to him and meet him. And I was introducing you to him as my younger brother, right? My father works so hard and is such an ox that no one can keep up with him physically. He ended up becoming a carpenter, did landscape. He would basically hire the best in the state of Minnesota at any sub-trade of building a home, you know, residential, commercial construction and development, a carpenter, a plumber, an electrician. And he would pay them their standard hourly rate to come to one of my dad's jobs and do the electrical work. And for the first day, let him just simply watch them for the entire day and ask them questions as they work. And then day two through four, two through seven, he would pay them their hourly rate to just simply watch him over his shoulder while he does it and tell him how to do it better. He would literally pay them their normally hourly rate to just stand there and correct him and make him an instant master of that craft. That's something my father taught me. People ask me why I have so many mentors. I invited 37 mentors to my wedding, which is in five days from this recording. We'll release it later, obviously, and I'll be married by the time people hear this. But yeah, my father taught me the importance of mentorship. He has mentors. But they're all old farmers from Norway and Sweden and stuff. You know, <laughs> My father, today, he cleans pipes underneath cities. These are storm drains under homes. These are culverts and drainage for the city for floods and rain and whatnot. And, you know, a little bit of sewage work, but that's minimal. And he's standing above ground with a giant truck that has a vacuum and a thousand gallon tank collecting things, rocks and whatnot to clean the pipes. He'll clean between six and 10,000 feet per day. Literally three to six times more what anyone else in this nation does in his profession. So that's my dad. My mother, Rosemary, her last name was Sherlock, her surname, um, were Irish. <laughs> in 1848, Abraham Lincoln land granted a large piece of land to the Sherlocks in Minnesota. And we've had that land. We still have that land in the homestead in our family to this day, you know, over one and a half centuries later. My great, great, great uncle, I might be wrong on the number of greats, Ram Sherlock plowed trees. It was a giant pine wooded and you know, oak and cedar wooded forest. And he literally just cut down trees with horses, a plow and an ax and a saw and cleared a lot of what is Belle Plaine today, the town that I grew up in. And so grandfather, Charlie, he was a engineer in the oil and gas industry and did a lot to help with like innovation on fracking and more efficient extraction of petrochemicals that are less harmful to the environment and improving those methodologies. Grandmother, Jean Sherlock, she was just a kind of stay-at-home wife. We had a farm, chickens, 10 different kinds of animals, farm to plow. Grandma did the farm. So my mom just had a rough go, but she went to the University of Minnesota. She started working at a furniture store. She quickly became the general manager 
And then she dropped out of college to buy in to be a large equity partner in this little local furniture business, and then eventually bought the whole thing and ran it. And then she became a general contractor. My mother was a general contractor. She hired subs and built homes and did remodels. This cute little lady who's 5'7 and 110 pounds, just, you know, she ran construction crews. She's amazing. She's so strong and commands respect from the people around her with grace and sophistication. She ended up with a client, some big house in some wealthy neighborhood in Minnesota. He's in finance at Smith Barney and he recruits her to become a financial advisor and a stockbroker. And my mom became the first female vice president of the Minneapolis office at Smith Barney. She had the former CEOs of US Bank and Dayton, you know, Target and companies and doctors and lawyers galore as her clients that she won trades from. She made a really good living. And so fast forward to me in my life. These are the four grandparents and two parents I come from. And so to my life story, grew up in that little farm town. I'll fast forward now more. Parents started getting divorced when I was seven. There was a lot of stuff I won't get into publicly yet that happened in their marriage that was pretty traumatizing. I was a pawn in a custody battle. Basically, each parent trying to convince me that I shouldn't want to see the other one. And you talk to psychologists and psychiatrists, that's recipe for drug addiction, jail, or death by the age of 25 before my prefrontal cortex is even fully formed and I have a chance of life. And so I had pretty severe psychological issues. I was diagnosed personally with acute pediatric PTSD when I was young. I used to have flashbacks and panic attacks. I'd be in a closet just like seized up, seizuring, and my parents would have to just come and slowly breathe and stroke my head and calm me down. I had severe anxiety. Never shared that part of my story publicly. Forgive me. This was when I was 11, 12, 13, a child. I went off to a residential treatment center in Texas called the Menager Clinic for four months for PTSD treatment. I received EMDR treatment, talk therapy, hours of therapy per day in a residential environment. I went to a couple of therapeutic boarding schools after that, the Grove School, the Allenwood Academy, one of which is now closed, basically to transition me into life again. Literally my teenage years, my parents spent rehabilitating me psychologically and emotionally. When my mom and Ralph won the financial war of attrition in the divorce and got full custody of me, we moved to Connecticut and New York, where I did middle school and high school and went through all this journey. I didn't see my father, Brian, for eight years, from the age of 11 to the age of 19. I didn't see my father once in person. I spoke to him, I think, twice over the phone over eight years. And it was him just risking legal retaliation, just calling me out of the blue to say, hey, I'm just thinking about you. I love you. Know that I care about you. And I didn't, you know. I'm always here. And hey, Wanda's doing well. We got a new car, sharing just some basic life updates to almost in our minds, make it feel like we weren't separated for a decade. You'd kind of engage in small talk to act like everything was fine. I got in a lot of trouble in high school. I got in trouble for smoking pot in school. I was smoking cigarettes when I was 17. I was training to be a professional boxer which almost materialized until my mom and Ralph stopped that from happening. Ralph, my stepfather, who she remarried after my father. I go into these therapeutic boarding schools and stuff, a wrecked, misguided, sad, fearful kid in pain. And I come out of it. I'm an RA, an anchor. I'm the IT intern. Basically, of the like several hundred kids at this high school, I was the number one most trusted student by the faculty. The IT internship is the number one internship of the most trust because you're the only intern with a key to the entire property. 
and you have access to all the laptops. And they have kids who will come in and steal stuff and run away and sell it and try to run away from home, their parents, their family, so they can go and be a criminal, go do drugs, just go be idiots as you know, 16-year-olds. At any given moment in high school, I was actually trusted by faculty to watch over 20 or 30 other younger students. And mind you, these are all students who are like super, half of whom are normal kids that just have wealthy parents that don't have time for them. The other half are kids who are like, it's juvenile after this and probably a life and not a prison after this. Like that was my classmates through like 10th, 11th and 12th grade. You know what I mean? And so it was an interesting dynamic. I finished high school. I go home and I reunite with Brian, my father, after eight years being apart. And it was a rocky road. I got into Fordham as a presidential leadership scholar. And I deferred my enrollment there a semester to start in January because I had went home over the summer to see my dad. And I wanted to live with my dad for the fall and continue building the relationship. And that's what I did. There was a lot of yelling matches and a lot of crying. And we were still were both immature and unequipped and not emotionally intelligent. Navigating these incredibly difficult and complex trauma conversations, right? Well, I go to Fordham. So now, okay, I have nine months of dad. I go over to Fordham. And at Fordham, I very quickly spiral into a depression. I felt alone. I felt like I didn't fit in. My first day at Fordham, I had like posters of women in bikinis with dirt bikes, you know, and guitars. Cause like I tried to assimilate to like small farm town, Minnesota. And because I had been in all these boarding schools, I was pretty sheltered. And so like my roommate who was in the football team at Fordham came in and he walked in and goes, oh, hell no, and turned around and left and started walking up and down the hallway going, hell no, oh, hell no. This was my welcome to Fordham, Ross. Welcome to your dorm, Ross. That's what I got. He was mean to me. He bullied me. I was ostracized instantly. I had friends. And every weekend I went out with a group of guys, a couple of different groups of guys. I hung out with guys every day. I made friends, but I didn't have their respect. I was judged heavily. I didn't know who I was. And so I just, I spiraled into a depression. And then that just made things worse because now I was in this vicious cycle of not being authentically myself, not knowing even who I am, not connecting with them authentically, you know, not being able to hang, if you will, not giving good vibe. (laughs) right? And then I'm just depressed and I don't want to talk to anybody about it. That just spiraled. I actually came close to the brink of suicide that spring semester of college at Fordham. My father, my mother, my stepfather, Ralph, my brother, Matthew, and my best friend, David Cohen, those five people I can count on one hand, kept me alive. I describe this time in my life as if you look into the abyss, you see this little staircase on the cliffside and you can walk down it half a mile, and it's just pitch black around you. And pretty soon the staircase ends and there's this little platform. And if you take the final step, you can never come back. It's the point of no return. That's where I was spiritually, emotionally, mentally, psychologically. I gained 45 pounds. I was 225 pounds and I didn't work out at all. I'm 185 pounds now and I'm 12% body fat. And my bone mass density is a Z-score of 3.4, you know? My VO2 max is in the 50s. I was 40 pounds heavier and with 20 less pounds of muscle back then. And I was just a wreck. And my best friend and my brother, Matt, and my three parents got me through it. And I moved back to Minnesota because I decided, hey, I still need to figure out who I am and I need to rebuild my relationship with my dad. I spent all these years in boarding school, all these years away from my dad. I want to be there. 
And so I went back to Minnesota. I enrolled at Norman. This is not on my resume. But Troy Greep, one of our donors, who's a, a mentor and friend, like an uncle to me, Troy Greep also went to Normandale Community College. So I went to Normandale and I started my consulting firm. Then we get into my resume story. The rest is all history. So I wanted to share sort of my hardships in my life and my history. We can talk about my career experience or whatever, but I wanted to share that and then say, then the reason I'm so motivated to serve others and do good in the world is quite straightforward and common. I'm not special or unique, and I don't want to be special or unique. I want everyone to want to help others as much as I do. But the reason I'm so motivated is I have known suffering so deeply firsthand and known pain and fear and uncertainty and not having my needs met, a disconnection. I know all these different drivers of pain, which then can also manifest as suffering if we allow it to, if we choose to think about it in such a way that creates now unnecessary suffering. I just want to create a world where no one has to go through what I went through. I want to create a world where everyone can experience love, joy, peace, connection, security, confidence, health, wealth, success, achievement. I want to create a world where people can feel those things. Everybody. Because when you feel the pain around us and you know it's there and you felt it yourself, you have to be apathetic or like on the spectrum of sociopathic to be okay with that, to not feel this like deep urge and sense of obligation and responsibility to alleviate that suffering. And if you study history and you're a student of history, two of my favorite books, Progress by Johann Norberg and Factfulness by Hans Orlig. I would highly recommend everyone listening to this to buy those two books, Progress by Johann Norberg and Factfulness by Hans Orlig. Excellent books. The story of human history is not this woke, hey, oh God, we're worse off than ever. We're more racist than ever, you know, than we were in Jim Crow days, like all that just crap. Like that's not true. We have more prosperity and less suffering in the world now than we ever have at any time in history. The last like five year moving average of human flourishing and human suffering, each of those is independent, inversely related metrics. It's the best it's ever been. And so it's like, let's just stop complaining, stop yelling at each other, stop dividing, stop dealing in stupid memes and headlines. I read 20, 25 books a year. Let's all read and learn and have knowledge about history, economics, philosophy, psychology, neuroscience. Like you mentioned that in my bio, I study all those things because those are the systems that are our best approximation across different mechanics of the systems and are the systems themselves that comprise our human experience, right? Like our actions, decisions, beliefs, and behaviors are the inputs into the human system. Economics, philosophy, all that is the system. And net human suffering and net human flourishing are the output. Input, system, output. It's not rocket science. Look at the world around us, all these massive problems that I can barely stand to stomach. Outputs. And then we just study the system and then architect and design and transform the systems to improve the outputs. And based on that feedback loop, learning loop just dictates what our inputs are. Let's all just be good people with integrity, humility, compassion, et cetera, good inputs. And let's build a better system 
and that accelerates the outputs. So sorry, I'm getting a little bit excited, Nishant. That's what motivates me. Yeah, that's an incredible story. And I think there's a few things I want to touch on there. The first is, I think it's immediately clear to me and to a lot of other people who know you, when you share the story of your parents, you know, Ralph, Rosemary, and your grandparents, I think it's immediately clear to a lot of us where you get sort of aspects of your personality from. It's funny because, you know, like you mentioned, I was speaking to Brian, your father, over the phone a couple of weeks ago on sort of a joint call. And it was funny and striking to me that what he did in his industry is in many ways what you're doing or trying to do for the financial sector, right? That was fascinating. Second thing I want to touch on is I just want to commend you for your courage, your vulnerability, right? I've heard you share some version of your life story probably 25 or 30 times now across different chapter launch meetings and other events. And this is the most detailed that I think I've ever heard you share and the most vulnerable. And of course, in front of you know potentially thousands of listeners. And so I just want to commend you for that because I know there's going to be people listening to this who not only you know will hear this and understand you better as a person, but will get a sense of clarity and motivation and purpose and drive for their own lives. I mean, Nishan, to your point, mm-hmm. I thank you. First of all, you're very kind. Thank you. I think about, you know, in my four years at Scholars of Finance, I don't know if I can count on two hands the number of times that there has been a student suicide at one of the chapters where we have a university, mm-hmm. Princeton being one of them, right? UVA, UPenn, gosh, just to name a few. So to your point, my hope is that anyone listening, if anyone listening to this, all of you listening, you, yes, you, the single person listening to this right now, I'm just going to have a call. I'm going to do what John C. Maxwell does. Right now, I'm only talking to you, the one person listening right now. If you're depressed, if you're even close to suicidal, if you're dealing with mental health issues, talk to someone immediately. Know that it is going to be okay and know that you fundamentally It is a fact, not an opinion. You can get through this. The only open question is if you will. And if you have the will and you do it, you will get through it. Little plug for mental health there. Yeah, absolutely. I want to touch on something you said a couple minutes earlier about the systems in the world that surround us, right? And how we're sort of able to examine those systems, figure out how they function and make changes to them, right? And the direction this is going is there's a lot of reasons to be both optimistic and sort of pessimistic about the future of finance, right? As this large superstructure that we attempt to study because of its power and influence in the world. On one hand, you know, we see that the industry-wide tide sort of seems to be turning, right? With a greater focus on ethics and impact and concepts like ESG, especially being in the spotlight lately. And I think a testament to that is how rapidly SOF has grown in the past couple of years and how the interest among both students and professionals in SOF has grown, right? Now, on the other hand, On the more pessimistic side, right, there have been sort of a number of pretty high-profile crises and scandals in the industry lately. And the problems that the world faces, you know, despite a lot of the overall trend of progress that you mentioned, a lot of these problems today globally seem like they're larger and more daunting than ever before. And so where do you stand on that spectrum of sort of optimism versus pessimism about the future of finance in the world? And how would you recommend that others think about that as they grapple with what might happen in the future? Excellent question, Nishant, and, and very well-built context, I think, for the question too, to set the frame. So I would begin by saying something, you know, a little bit attention-grabbing, which I believe pessimism serves little to no utility as an emotion 
and as like a sort of paradigm and just view of the world. And in fact, I think pessimism actively causes net disutility in aggregate at a population level. Take finance. I am 100% optimistic and 0% pessimistic about the future of the financial industry. For all the reasons you just mentioned, Scholars of Finance has grown from three universities and 40 students to 60 universities and more than 2,000 students with 2,000 more coming in in the fall. Like We're now at a run rate, Nishant, where every year, in four years from this fall, every year, SOF sends at least 2,000, maybe 1,500 minimum analysts into the financial system. And we've spent hundreds of hours with them. That is true. But they have also spent hundreds of hours with each other, sharpening each other with content and programs that we have built. So I think everyone on earth should be more optimistic about the future of the financial system than they ever have before. If you've seen the play Hamilton, it's like that on steroids, but we're not, you know, going to have affairs and not get in gun duels, you know, <laughs> like, so when you look at even the, just the last couple of recessions, you know, since the great depression, major financial market and economic dislocations, the damage has been much less severe in the last several ones than it was before. The Great Depression was far worse than the great financial crisis of 2008, right? Than the COVID slip of 2020. This was all a walk in the park compared to that, you know, a century ago. And so we've made progress even in how, you know, public with government, regulators, the Fed, private players, and even just individual actors, you know, in this big economic game, like we're all getting smarter and wiser and making better decisions individually and therefore in aggregate. And even like financial firms, Another example, Goldman Sachs is over 100 years old. Well, BlackRock is 40 years old. And A, look at the number of bad things BlackRock has done compared to any other financial firm. It's very low. And then B, they are now the largest asset holder on the planet with about 10 trillion in assets, and they've done it in four decades. So who's to say that we're not going to have 10 or 20 more Larry Finks? Who's to say that you or I aren't going to be one of them? Or that one of the now 3,500 students we've impacted isn't going to be one of them. So if anything, I'm going to encourage all of our scholars, like study Goldman, read the partnership, which I still have yet to read, study BlackRock. Let's all study the BGI deal in 2009, which apparently was one of Larry's best strokes of genius in building BlackRock when the ETFs business was hot and ripe for growth. And iShares was a genius move. Let's get into all that stuff and let's just go do it. So Nishant, I think pessimism is usually and generally useless and actually harmful. And I'm happy to have dialectic, not debate. I'm happy to have dialectic with anybody on that subject. Yeah. And when you explain it that way, I think a lot of people will find myself included that it's not a controversial statement at all. Another way you could potentially look at it is, regardless of how optimistic or pessimistic you are about the state of the world today and where it might go in the future, there's certain mindsets that are going to be helpful to improving it and, and certain mindsets that are not. And, and it seems pretty clear you fall on the side of, hey, whatever the mindset is that allows us to create the most positive change possible is sort of the mindset to subscribe to. And that makes perfect sense. Having known you for three years. You nailed years. it. It's a great summary. Gold star. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of the couple of thousand students that you mentioned, SOF will soon be launching every year into the financial industry. You've, of course, had the opportunity over the past several years to interact with hundreds and potentially thousands of students, right? Freshmen, sophomores, juniors, seniors, who are members in our programs, right? Across all our chapters. And I was curious, how have your interactions with students at our chapters, as well as, you know, student leaders and student interns at SOF, how have these interactions affected you 
personally and professionally? And have they had an impact on you in the past couple of years? I have a feeling I know what you're <laughs> going to say, but. <laughs> oh my gosh. They've shaped me. Yeah. Everyone listening to this podcast probably is a member of our community. I think our email listserv is now like three or 4,000 people. I forget exactly the number. This community has shaped me. Every time I'm a Scholars of Finance event, you know, I did as chairman, CEO, and co-founder of Scholars of Finance. And, you know, in those capacities, I did almost 60 speaking engagements between mid-January and mid-May. You know, it was like donor dinners and lunches and coffees all throughout in between and tons of phone calls with my staff on the road and whatnot. And I spoke to thousands of people in our community. I spoke to probably 2,000 people approximately, you know, in the spring live doing speeches and talks and Q&A and whatnot. And when I'm in those rooms, in the classrooms, in the symposium, you know, keynote, banquet hall, or wherever I am, I look out and I think I am being shaped by these people. That's what I want everyone in Scholars of Finance to think. Anyone listening, anytime you listen to the podcast, anytime students, you do a speaker series, you see one of our mentors in our mentor network, you're in the leadership development program, you're doing a values forum. I want you to think I'm learning from the people around me and they are relying on me to help them learn too. So Nishant, I don't know who I'd be without everybody in this community. I'd be a nobody. Is there like a particularly memorable story or two that comes to mind from the past year or so? Jeez, where do I even begin? There's so many. Give us one or two. Gosh, what are a couple that I don't always give? I always tell the story of Andrew Duff giving the mm -hmm. talk at Piper Sandler, you know, former chairman, CEO of Piper Sandler, giving the talk to all of us interns. And I reached out for the meeting per his offer and got a 15 minute meeting and prepped for it for eight hours. And, you know, I said, Hey, we're at time. I have so many more questions. Thanks. And he said, Hey, let's reach out to my assistant. Let's grab an hour in a month or two and grab coffee across the street. And he's been mentoring me once a month for eight years ever since Andrew Duff. A couple of years later, Richard Davis, you know, famously, I always say, grabbed me. And after the second symposium we did as recent mm -hmm. college grads, he grabbed me and Ryan by the lapels and said, finance needs this. You know, you have to do this for more schools and more universities and more cities, and I will help mm -hmm. make sure it happens. Just promise right. me you'll commit to growing this. Mm -hmm. Almost verbatim what he said. Yeah. That's a big one. And, you know, gosh, you fast forward to these relationships. We had to manage someone out in our team for the first time. Mm -hmm. I talked to Andrew Duff four times. and leading up to it. And in the aftermath, it all went yeah. well. Richard Davis, when my fiance Maya got her breast cancer diagnosis last May 23rd, 2022, mm -hmm. which, you know, she's now in remission on since January of this year, I texted 10 of my closest mentors, including Andrew and Richard. Hey, Maya was diagnosed with cancer. Do you have five minutes to talk today? I copy pasted it to 10 of my closest mentors. Richard called me within five minutes and said, Ross, I just stepped out of a board meeting. I have all the time in the world. Talk to me. And he's on the boards of, at that time, MasterCard, Dow Chemical, the Mayo Clinics, Make-A-Wish America, you know, where he was also CEO. It was one of those. He just like stepped out of it to be there for me. And I cried to him for 10 minutes. And then he basically spoon-fed me word for word what to say to my executives when I called them and said, I have to take the week off and they have to run the ship and I trust them to do it. He just told me exactly what to do. And then of the 10 mentors I texted, I spoke with seven of them that day. Yeah. Maya spent most of her day. She was already at Stanford Hospital in residency in internal medicine at Stanford. She was at the hospital just talking to her friends and teammates and colleagues and attendings. She set up 10 appointments and had surgery in eight days. Mm -hmm. So she just went into like, I'm killing this mode. 
I went into, I need to know how to lead and be a rock and support her mode. I probably had 40 phone calls in that eight day span with friends, mentors, teammates, directors, advisors, donors, just trying to figure out how to put one foot in front of the other and put my pants on in the morning. And so those are a few examples. Are there any stories of your interactions with SOF student members in the past year or so that come to mind as particularly sort of memorable or inspiring? I want to mention Orion Vejia. I think at some point we should do a podcast with his parents and just talk about him. He was from Cincinnati, young man, and he was the president of the Indiana University chapter. He was on our national team as a development associate, ran our little fundraising team here, and was one of my closest mentees. We talked weekly or daily, and he tragically died in a swimming accident. And I immediately got in touch with his parents, was very supportive of the family. They're first, like you just got to help them get their masks on. You know, I went out there, went to the funeral, was invited to the funeral, spoke to the family there and honored Aryan. That day they had me out to their home, had dinner in their home on another occasion while I was out there for a few days. I went to the memorial service, spent time with them. You know, Aryan, he was such an interesting case because he was pure and he idolized sort of the rich and powerful in a way that it was like, I always felt like he was on the knife's edge of being an elitely impactful person in the world through finance or like being a sort of moderately impactful person in finance who's like only sort of moderately altruistic. That was the range for him. It was either like moderate to like extreme. It wasn't like he was going to be some selfish Wolf of Wall Street wannabe. I never even thought of him as even being near that range on the spectrum. He was like kind of average to could be one of the best is what I saw in him and to have him pass away and he learned about him and honor him. You know, we're going to launch an award in his honor, which we're going to award for the first time this November on Aryan's birthday and his parents on Zoom or, or maybe in person are going to award this to one of our several thousand students by that time. The Aryan Vejia Legacy Award for Courage and Impact. And um yeah, it's a story I'm going to have to get used to telling. So uh, forgive me. Might as well start now. Ross, this has been such a fascinating conversation and inspiring to me and I'm sure so many others. I'm, of course, excited. Hopefully we can turn this into a series and continue to have you on the podcast. So members, students, and professionals in our network outside of it can continue to learn more and more from you. I've got two rapid fire questions submitted by our community that I would love to run past you really quick. Do it. So first and foremost, what is the most important value and the most important skill for young professionals in finance to develop? I'll answer it with two things that are both a value and a skill, mm-hmm. humility and curiosity. Understood. And final question for you, what are three books that have changed your life that you would recommend that anybody listening to the show, whether they're a student, young professional, or executive in or outside of our network should read? Three books that I would recommend anyone read that changed my life. First would be the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin, his own autobio. It's an excellent book. Second that I would offer as an easy one is Atomic Habits by James Clear. And then I think up there, I'll give you three more. The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel, Principles by Ray Dalio, and Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community by Martin Luther King Jr. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Ross. This has been incredible. We will do this again, of course, and turn this into your series. Congratulations in advance on your wedding in four days and take care. Thank you, Nishant. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode of Investing in Integrity by Scholars of Finance. I want to share a huge thank you to our advisors, directors, donors, team, and our members who make this all possible. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have any feedback for us, you can send it to hello at scholarsoffinance.org or by visiting our website. Until next time, please join us on our mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow.